I want to present to you Mr. Carl Lemley, who is a real pioneer in the art of motion pictures, as well as the president of the Universal Film Corporation, whose company produced that marvelous production, All Quiet on a Western Front, which the Academy has privileged me to bestow upon Mr. Lemley through their vote that that's the picture they acclaim as the greatest achievement for the year. I might also add, Mr. Lemley, that many of the great writers in magazines have asked this picture receive the Nobel Peace Prize of the year. And it's with great pleasure that I give you this presentation of the bronze statuette, which is an indication that the Academy, as well as the entire industry, consider that you've produced a real epic and fine achievement. A group of German schoolboys are talked into enlisting at the beginning of World War I by their jingoistic teacher. As the boys witness death and mutilation all around them, any preconceptions about the enemy and the rights and wrongs of the conflict disappear, leaving them angry and bewildered. All this is witnessed and told through the eyes and deeds of young Paul Balmer, who through the horrors of the Great War finds camaraderie, friendship and brotherhood in his soon-to-be dearest friend Stanislaus Kat Kaczynski. The two experience many adventures during their time in No Man's Land and both hope for a safe return home when all is quiet on the Western Front. Ciao my people and welcome to our third episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast where we travel through time reviewing the films that earned their gold statue or standard if you will. Once again joining me today at the Gold Standard Theatre are my two podcasting partners in crime. On one side the fantastic Rachel Friend. Hey Rachel, how are you doing? I am great. Awesome. And on the other side we have the fantabulous Zan Sprouse. How are you doing Zan? I am well Nick, how are you? I cannot complain, Zan. Super, super happy to be back with you both here at the Gold Standard Theatre to discuss our third movie, and which actually will be our second war movie. And there will be more, more war movies for sure. This is, the second, <laughs> this is the, the second war movie to win an Oscar for Best Picture, All Quiet on the Western Front, directed by Lewis Milestone, who won the Oscar for Best Director for this movie, along with Two Arabian Nights from 27 which also won the Oscar for Best Director. It was written and adapted from Eric Maria Remarque's bestseller by, and of course, uh, was written by Maxwell Anderson, Del Andrews, and C. Gardner Sullivan. The music was by David Brockman, and to put it into today's money, ladies, this film cost around $18 million to make and made around $23 million at the box office and has a runtime of about 2 hours and 13 minutes, though the original actually ran for almost 2 hours and 30 minutes. But yeah, you get the idea. So before we get into first impressions, ladies, I, I actually wanted to give a little bit of a backstory behind this film because it was highly acclaimed in, US, in the US, but it did not go down so well in its native Germany, where apparently the Nazis who were rising to power strongly opposed this film. Apparently, during and after its German premiere in Berlin on the 4th of December of 1930, Nazi brown shirts under the command of Joseph Goebbels actually disrupted the viewings by setting off stink bombs. They were throwing sneezing powder in the end. They were releasing white mice in the theaters. So this was 
definitely they did not the Nazis did not like this film and we will definitely see why it was actually they they very much considered it a Jewish film they, you know they were kind of yelling Juden film and stuff because they found it was very uh, anti-war and we know how much of course uh, national socialism is totally for war and conquest um, but yeah, and, and they actually ended up banning this film in, in Germany. It was also banned in Austria, over here in Italy, till the 1980s, if you can believe that. And in France up to 1963, and even in Australia. So quite a controversial movie for the time, at least in Europe. So when it comes to first impressions here, um, you know, what, what, were your, what were your first takeaways from this film? Let's start with you, Zan. Had you read the book? And was this the first, the first time you watched this film? This was the first time I'd watched this movie, and I have not read the book. And I will admit to a long history of disliking war movies, just <laughs> sort of not being interested. And I think it was because of growing up in a time of you either had these heavily romanticized World War II movies that were on TV all the time, or you had you seem to be inundated in the 80s with Vietnam movies. You had Platoon, you had Hamburger Hill, you had, I mean, not even just Vietnam movies, but you just had all these war movies. You had um, Full Metal Jacket. You, you, just, you just had all these war movies for some reason, and it just felt very, I don't know how to describe it. It felt very self-serving, very heavy-handed, very testosterone-fueled, so I just sort of, got on this bandwagon of, I don't like war movies, I don't even want to see them, blah, blah, blah. And I've realized in the last about 10 years what a disservice I've done to myself by not watching the good war movies. And this is quite possibly one of the best war movies I've ever seen. This movie was fantastic, and I loved it a lot more than I thought that I would. I was dragging my feet a little bit. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll quiet on the Western Front. It's a war movie. It's going to be interesting, but meh. And even something like Wings that is very like, oh, yeah, there's a war. Look, there's hookers, and hey, I'll have a parade, you know? So you had that. There is that tradition in Hollywood of the the romanticized war movie, which is, you know, the propaganda war movies, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. But this one was so good, had such a fantastic... Um, honesty about it, about here's what war is really like. And I, and I felt like, yes, also anything banned by Hitler has got to be good. <laughs> so I felt, I, I felt like this, this one, yes, you could sort of see it as being anti-German, but I thought it was more anti-war in general, that this is, these these boys, they go from college to war thinking, oh, hey, this is going to be great. I'm going to be in the infantry, and I'm going to be in artillery, and that's where the fighting is. And they have no freaking clue how horrible this is. And they get right into it right at the you know, right when they're in training. It's like, okay, here, get down in the mud. Like, that's the first thing they do. So this really shows you how terrible war is, not necessarily... I, I didn't feel like it was terribly anti-German, you know, except for the whole, like, you know, work your soldiers to death thing. But that was, that's beside the point. But it, it's so anti-war that, and so honest about how horrible war is. I just absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. And, and what about you, Rachel? Was this the first time watching this film? And, uh, and had you uh, read the, the original book from which this movie is uh, adapted from? 
I have not. Uh, I did not know. I went into this one completely blind, um, and I'm I'm kind of like Zan, where I'm just I'm not really a fan of war movies, <laughs> um, but um, this is just it's it's so different uh, than any other war movies I've ever seen. Um, it's it's tough. This one this one is a it's a gut punch. That's a, the only way I can de- describe it. Is the at least in my you know initial reaction when I got to the end of it and is just like wow, this is so just not what I expected to get from a World War One movie. Mm-hmm. Well, it was definitely there were definitely quite a few punches to the gut in this film, indeed. You know, and quite a few tugs to the heart as well. I mean, I, I have to say, I did not think, you know, just like the two of you, that a movie from 1930 would make me feel so uncomfortable and also move me as it did. Because this might actually be one of the closest movies we get on how horrendous and terrible World War One was, like you were both saying, and what it did for these young teenage boys who literally gave their lives during this conflict. And also, I thought it was interesting to see the German side of things, you know, coming off of our recent viewing of Wings, you know, we had the Allies perspective. And just unlike Wings, we don't really get much of the Allies in this film, you know, because there you didn't get, you know, okay, you had the Germans flying on and off, but you didn't really have sorry, any sort of interaction or, you know, as it were, with the enemy. And this is kind of the same, aside, of course, from that incredible scene where Paul Baumer is with the French soldier that he kills and stays with the corpse all night. And we will get to that scene because that was a pretty strong one indeed. And I'm sure, and of course, I'm sure there's a lot to say about them. It was such a stirring film. And I'm so glad that because of this podcast, I got to watch it because who knows, probably I never would have sat down to watch this film. And I'm so glad that we got this opportunity to do it because it's just an incredible, incredible film. So let's get to our main players on the board here, and ones I think pretty much stood out for all of us. Let's start with a man whom I think is an important character, both at the beginning and at the end of the film, Arnold Lucy, and um, Zan was actually mentioning him as Professor Kantarek. So when it came to this kind of, you know, strong character of Professor Kantarek, what did you make of him, Rachel? What were your thoughts on this professor? I just, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to slap him. <laughs> it was just, uh, you know, it's like he gives this, you know, he's this, uh, you know, he's got this, he's a professor of who knows what he's got. There's all sorts of like quotes and like Greek and stuff written up on the blackboard behind him. Um, and he just, he has this like idolized, he you know, gives this impassioned speech to this room full of, of male students, and he just, I, you know, the entire time, you know, obviously I've got the out, out of the movie, you know, perspective of, you know, I war is not anything as flowery as has he you know these boys he's giving this speech and you, you get these flashes up on the screen of the boys you know thinking that they're going to be cut you know they're going to go off to war come home there's going to be a parade girls are going to be fawning over them and all this and he just paints just this unrealistic picture of what it's like to to serve in a war um 
and he really, really does these boys a, a disservice. And I, I don't know if it's he's just full on like propaganda machine. You know, if he's getting something out of it, I don't know what he'd be getting out. You know, if if he just wants to get, you know, he doesn't want to teach anymore, so he figures this is the easiest way to get rid of him. I don't know, uh, but uh, so I don't know what his. Other than, you know, if he's just feeling really, really patriotic for mm. his love for Germany or what? I just don't know what his, um, I guess his motivation is for riling up these guys to go enlist and serve in this war when he has this nice cushy job as a professor. Yeah, very well said indeed. And, and what were your thoughts on Professor Kantarek, Zan? Rachel, I actually wrote down in my notes, propaganda machine. Yeah. Because... See, the two of you are so in sync, it's, it's, it's scary. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, we, are, we, have, we have similar similar ideas. So, for me with him, I, I feel a very similar way that Rachel did. And he just made me so angry because it's always like these old men that are so ready for these young boys to, to go off to their death for the glory. And that's what they're selling to them. When you think about these boys when they were in class and being told by their professor that you should do this for the fatherland, what they're thinking of is the glory. They're not thinking of the four years they're going to spend in a trench. If they're lucky, they're going to spend four years in a trench. They're going to maybe spend six months and then never come home again. So they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about everything, all of the propaganda we've ever been told, all of the war hero stories, and all of the do it for the fatherland, you know, time to be a man, son. And you're getting that from this professor. You get it a little bit later when Paul is on leave with the old men in the bar. But that idea of the old man who just can't wait to send young people to, to war nauseates me. And well, I just hated this character because he embodied that so perfectly. Well, yeah, it looks like you know, we're all in agreement because he is probably one of the few men in this film that I'm sure the Nazis actually appreciated. Because, right. Because it's all about that romanticism of war and, of course, that famous Latin phrase, uh, Dulce decorum est pro patria mori, which I actually you know, had to learn for numerous reasons. I believe there's a famous Wilfred Owen poem with that title. And uh, but yeah, it was. And as soon as he, he started sort of spouting out this, the, the first word, I was like, yeah, here we go with the rhetoric, because you wonder, mm -hmm. as Rachel was saying, I had that same thought. I wonder whether he was actually financed by the government to fire up these youngsters and get them to enlist us. We get the impression he probably does this with every single class of students that he teaches. And, and he does. You saw him later in the movie with even younger boys. This is what he does. Yeah. And so I wonder whether there's something in it for him or, or, or he is just in that kind of firebrand, you know, war loving kind of guy and just is like, you know, let's do this. Let's go and, you know, uh, go to war. But um, and of course, we do get to the, the callback, you know, with the other students later to the eager and smiling face of Paul and his classmates, as you were saying, Zan, when Paul is on leave and he sees the same thing repeating itself. And that was actually a nice comparison, I think, to have the before photo and the after photo, as it were, of Paul. You know, when he arrives back in the classroom and he sees the same thing that he and his fellow classmates were subjected to. So I thought that was that was that was that was a very interesting. And and, you know, he's such a I think he's such a dangerous and awful character, not to mention how he almost turns the class against Paul when he tells the when Paul is like, 
guys, you know, war is not all fun and games and, you know, I've lost friends and it's terrible and stuff. And Professor Cantorick at first, you know, because when Paul comes in, he's like, yeah, um, you know, here's the hero back from war and all this kind of thing. And then he turns almost the other students against him. It's like, wow, you know, I was just blown away by that for sure. Um, and so as we mentioned him, let's get to our lead character himself, Mr. Lou Ayres as Paul Baumer, who, to his credit, also played Dr. Kildare in nine movies. So any fans of Dr. Kildare from way back when, you probably will have seen Lou Ayres as well. So what did we think of our lead character? Let's start with you, Zan. What did you make of Paul Baumer? I think he's one of the most well-rounded character arced characters that I've seen from a movie from this time. Uh, as a character, I thought he was, he started out so typical and just, yeah, let's go to war guys. Let's do it. And he goes through so many things and learns so much morality from his experiences that he may or may not have learned not going to war, not saying that war is good as a teaching mechanism. I'm just saying that there are some people who live unexamined, sheltered lives their entire lives and never come to the sort of realizations that they should be coming to unless they have something horrifically traumatic like Paul has. For example, when they visit um, Franz in the hospital and he realizes, you know, I shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be saying, oh, what do you mean your feet hurt? You don't even have any legs, dude. Or, you know, don't ask him for his boots right now it just even little things like that and like you were saying when you were saying earlier nick about when he stabs the the french soldier and he's he's like i didn't want to kill you somebody else is telling me i should kill you he really goes through a lot of awareness self-awareness that i don't think he may have gone through otherwise without it and even when he comes back home you know he's got that we all have that idea of going home and then you go and then your favorite ice cream place is a gas station now or your house looks so much smaller than you remembered it or, or whatever happens when you go back to where you grew up. As Morrissey says, you can never go back to the old house. But um, when he goes home and he's looking around and he's seeing not just what the war he doesn't he knows what the war has done to him and his and his friends and his um and his company but now he's seeing what the war has done to his town you know with the closed businesses and the people you know it wasn't just the soldiers that couldn't find food in germany during the war it was everybody and he comes back and he's you know trying to do the right thing for his mother you know he's he's even saying you know, oh, just save it for when I get back and just trying to be as positive as he can for her. And even tries to be a little bit better of a brother when he when he's on leave. And just he has that scene where he's like, you'll always think of me as your little boy. And why can't I just cry in your lap? Because he's he's realizing that the world is not what he thought it was when he was 20 or or however old he was when he went, because he he's seen how horrific humans can be to other humans and he's learning from that and I feel like this character is definitely done a service by having him learn from that because like we've said before I mean we'll probably compare all of our war movies eventually as we talk to them but as we talk about them but when you think about something like Wings where you have a character who has seen some things and done some things and they come home and all is forgiven and oh here's my parade okay I get the girl good night mm -hmm. so 
I feel like there may have been people like that in the world that lived an unexamined life before the war, during the war, and after the war, but I don't think that's Paul. I think Paul is a much deeper, much more interesting character because of how much he grows and how much his, how much he realizes about humanity during his time. Very well said, Dean. What about you, Rachel? What did you make of our Paul Balmer? Yeah, I mean, uh, him compared to you know the other boys in his class that enlist with him and even some of the, the characters that they come across uh, once they get in the service, I think he's one of the most fleshed out and obviously he's the kind of the, the focus of the story and it's probably uh, the personification that the uh, remark who wrote the book uh, probably based Paul on himself and um, but, um, yeah, because uh, some of the other guys, I mean, one of the guys gets killed, like, as soon as they report to the field. Um, and then they just start getting picked off throughout the film. Um, and so some of them don't get the chance to get fully fleshed out. But uh, some of them, they almost seem to become almost extreme, like, caricatures mm. of uh what people may, you know, you know, whatever label you want to put on, you know, someone who, you know, the the regretful person, you know, you've got a guy that's like, I've got a wife and kids back home. It's like, I don't want to be here. And then you've got guys that are, you know, literally cowering in the corner, just screaming, uh, going insane because of the situation they're in. Um so, you know, Paul goes through this whole roller coaster of, of, you know, different emotions, you know, highs and lows. And, um, you know, we'll, obviously uh, we'll talk about the ending. It's not the prettiest ending for our hero. Um, <laughs> it was but, visually pretty. but <laughs> Well, yes. Uh, but, you know, by the time he gets that ending, at least he is someone that we've we've come to know. And so when uh, so when he does get his ending, I think uh, it's the biggest gut punch of all of them because it's someone we've actually gotten to know. Oh yeah, it's it did. That's very very true. And in fact, like you were saying in the remark book, the the uh, the book is actually told from Paul's perspective. It's actually written in the first person. I actually found out about this because. Funny enough, when I told my mother that we were watching this movie, like, oh, I have to listen to this episode. I'm going to go and rush off and read the book. So she was happily, you know, telling me this stuff. And so, yeah, it's basically told from Paul's perspective. But, yeah, when it comes to the character of Paul, there's definitely a lot to unpack with this character. He's pretty much, like we were both saying, is our focal point throughout the film. And the more intimate and key scenes have him at the, the forefront. But you know, like you were, you know, like you were saying, also, Zan, like the character of Jack in Wings. At first, he's very much the happy-go-lucky guy wanting to embrace the romantic dream of fighting for his country and how glorious this is. But of course, he has a much more fleshed-out arc than Jack, and there actually is, there are consequences in this film, unlike Wings. But yeah. And there's so many times when he just doesn't get it too. You know, the whole we haven't eaten since breakfast. I'm like, yeah, breakfast. Yeah, talk to me next week. You know, yeah. or, we, or we need butter for our bread, too. It's like, yeah, whatever, kid. <laughs> yeah. Good good luck with that, for sure. Uh -huh. but, but, yeah, we do learn he very much has that heart of gold. And it is also very sad how war changes him. And unlike Wings, you know, we actually do get, you know, the psychological effects 
somewhat what these poor boys go went through. And I also think, you know, you, you, you touched up on these a little bit, Zan. I think we should definitely look at the important scenes we do get with Paul, which allow us to see more of his character. First off, I would I would actually look at that scene where he goes along with his comrades to see their friend, Franz Kemmerich, and how he does his best to comfort him, because, of course, there he knows he does not have long to live and tries to distract him, you know, from the fact that Franz has lost his legs and he's going to die. So what did you guys make of that scene? Rachel, when you saw that scene, what, what did you make of uh, of how Paul tries to comfort France? Well, I mean, Paul seems at that point to have the levelist head uh, on it, on his shoulders. Like the other guys, um, they just, they, I don't know if they were just in shock or they're overwhelmed or what. So, I mean, anytime you get into a, a situation, you know, I, I think we've all been there where somebody's been injured or ill and they're in the hospital and it's not always a life and death situation, but still there's kind of a bit of an awkwardness, mm -hmm. I think, um, when you're interacting with somebody who's having a, a medical situation and it's like, do I bring it up? Do they want to talk about it? Do I act like it, that, you know, there nothing is happening at all is there somewhere in the middle so it's like you know the one guy focuses on the boots i think you know one there's a, a practical side to it like you know they're in horrific conditions and it's like you know i've got these boots that are you know i might as well be walking around barefoot and it's like oh you know these would be great you know for for me going back out into the field but at the same time it's like I I think he focuses on that because he just can't or won't focus on the fact that their friend is here has lost a leg and is probably going to die and it's like I it's you know just if I don't focus on it if I don't talk about it it's not an actual thing and hey look at these boots aren't these great <laughs> <laughs> so it's like I could totally under I totally understand the situation. It was still hard to watch because you know the guy kept going on about the boots, and I just wanted to like slap him, just like forget about the boots. Your friend is it's not sick. the it, time. It, yes, there's a time and a place for this, and this is not it. When he's uh, dead, we'll take his boots, we'll take his pants, we'll take everything, but not right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was it, 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 it was pretty bad. I think that we there a lot of folks needed to be slapped in this film, indeed, and then some. Um, uh, Zanya, since you also brought it up, what did you make of that scene with France? I I did think it was interesting how everybody was processing it differently. Like you were saying, Rachel, that maybe it's their maybe it's that they're trying to not think about the fact that he's about to die, and they're trying to just push it out of their minds and be practical about it. Like what? He's not using the boots. What, what are you looking at me for? And at the same time, I feel like it really showed us a lot about who Paul was as a person because they're all about ready to leave. And he's there. He's like, Oh yeah, we'll see you again later. We'll come back and uh, we'll bring you stuff. And Paul knows what's going to happen. He says, you know what guys, I'm, I'll, I'll catch up to you later. And just to make sure that, not only does Franz not Franz does not have to be alone when he dies, but nobody else has to see him be be scared or in pain. And on the other hand, nobody else has to watch that happen. Also, so he really yeah. takes one for the team in that scene by being there 
and by shielding everybody else who he realizes through the conversation of, can I have your boots? They're not ready for this. They're not ready to watch this kind of horror. And even when he runs around, oh my God, where's a, where's a damn doctor? And, you know, who, who is your friend? The one with his legs blown off. And he's like, yeah, that doesn't narrow it down around here, son. So he's, he's really trying to do the best thing he can for everyone involved. You know, he's really sort of sacrificing his, his own sanity to be able to be there with his friend when his friend dies and to make sure that the friends who can't handle it don't have to handle it. Yeah, it, it was very much a brutal scene. There are quite a few brutal scenes in this movie, for sure. And folks, if you do go to watch this film, definitely be prepared to have some tissues handy. And, you know, it's it definitely is a, it is a very, very strong film indeed, even to this day. And it's just, I was... I was like, like Rachel, I was having trouble watching this scene and symbols like, yeah, just please get it over because this is really, really distressing me right now. Um, but uh, it was it was it was just so, so well done for sure. And another big scene I would also say as another one which you touched up on, Zan, is the one with the French soldier that Paul kills. And we see how distraught he is over this actually talking to the corpse after he has died and. We get the whole, I guess, commentary right here of how senseless war is. And we see that Paul literally goes into hysterics. And Lou Ayres does a fantastic job in this in this particular scene of just kind of laughing and crying and just completely going out of his mind when he tries to bring him water. And he I mean, I think he knows in his mind that, this, that he's already dead, but he keeps going back to get him water. And it was just, oh, my, it was just such a really, really strong scene. And we do get this kind of a little bit later in the death of Kat Kaczynski as well, but we will get to that later on. When it came to the French soldier scene, Zan, what did you make of, of that, that particular scene? Was it as uh, sort of gut-wrenching for you as it was for me? It, I, I was in so much shock that it was hard to have my gut wrenched. I just was watching it going, I cannot believe that, that I'm, I'm looking at this, that this is, this is so horrific and so human and it's not again it's not what we think about when we think about hollywood movies and it's not what we think about when we think of early hollywood too you know we think of early hollywood we think of the broadway melody you know we think of we think of musicals we think of you know charlie chaplin but we don't think of this sort of realism and this this movie you know pre-code 1930s so there's a lot going on here and I, one of the things I loved about this scene was the way it started, how he is in the trench, but then you see the French soldiers jumping over him, and then the one who, who notices him, he's ready with the knife. And it's a, it's a me or him situation, but again, it, it was me or him is a game with no winners, regardless. So the fact that he starts out hiding and defending himself from being attacked and then becoming the caregiver for the person he attacked was really a wonderful way to show that war is hell and humanity is what survives war because they didn't do anything like the Christmas Christmas armistice in this movie, but this was close to it where you have the look I didn't want to kill you you probably didn't want to kill me we're just doing this because some guy told us to and like you said Lou Ayers did a fantastic fantastic job in this scene because he's essentially 
working off of a corpse and working through every emotion, you know, fear, anger, sorrow, regret, um, just every gamut of his psyche is just pouring out in this trench. And I thought the scene was extremely powerful. And it was, and after it was over, I just was like, did I, what did I just watch? Did I just watch somebody talk to a corpse for like 10 minutes? This is, this is incredible. Oh yeah, it very much isn't. And what about you, Rachel? What did you make of this scene? Oh, I mean, Zan's absolutely, she's reading my mind again. Um, <laughs> it, it's just, uh, it's just a, a tough thing. And again, watching, watching our, 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 you know, our guy just go through this roller coaster of, you know, it's like, you know, I, I've watched some of my friends die. I don't want to die. This person's trying to kill me. I'm going to defend myself. And in the process of defending myself, it's causing me to take this person's life. And that's not something that I'm mentally, pro- I don't think you can ever be mentally prepared for taking someone's life, even if it is in self-defense. Um, you know, even when that, that fight or flight, you know, kicks in and, you know, you're never really, I don't think, mentally prepared for it. Um, so, and then after the fact where, you know, he has to go through, I don't know what the passage of, of time is. They're very, not very specific with the passage of time actually throughout this entire movie. Um, but he's obviously in that, in that, that foxhole or that trench for, for quite a while. Um, and, uh, you know, acting against this person who can't react. I mean, the guy playing the, the, uh, the, the dead soldier, um, I, I believe I read somewhere that he was a, a silent film star that apparently had no voice. He had lost his voice. So this was like the last movie he ever did because with the invention of the sound, he was out of a job. <laughs> but he plays a corpse really, really well. <laughs> um, so, you know, the fact that he was able to, you know, lay there and, you know, with his eyes open and his, you know, his body just sitting there while, you know, this guy just cries and screams and yells and hugs him and, you know, rifles through his stuff. And um, it's it's a powerful scene considering there's only two people in it and one of the people is dead. It's it's just the uh, it's just a perfect, perfect and very, very potent scene, like you were saying for sure, Rachel. And, and then from, should we say, a moment of great distress, let's get to one of the few maybe moments of tenderness in this film, I guess we could say. When, when, of course, Paul and his friends meet the French girls. And because uh, it's one of actually one of the few more quiet and tender moments in this film in such a, you know, a violent film, I would say. I mean, and, you know, granted, OK, one could say the violence is pretty tame for today's standards, but it's just psychologically, I think it's very violent. But um, and of course, you know, we have Paul and his friends ostensibly have sex with these with these French girls. Now, when it came to this scene, Rachel, I heard you chuckling there. What did you make of the whole sort of meet up with the French girls going into their sort of apartment, then ending up having sex with them? What do you think of that scene? Well, I just that when we first uh, see the, the French girls, you know, the guys of uh, all decided to to go for a bath in the river essentially and they're just you know splashing around having fun and 
they you know they turn and there's these three French girls and a cow. <laughs> the cow's like moo, and the girls are like you know trying to be all shy, and the guys are like hey. And I was doing the mental math. I'm like, well, there's three French girls. There's four of them. Which one of them's getting the cow? Um, <laughs> but um, it was you know it was interesting and kind of funny that you know these girls are like you know la da 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 you know pretend like they don't see them you know playing a little hard to get maybe and then they realize they have food and that's a whole other ball of wax and they're like oh yeah you give us food we'll give you some fun uh, <laughs> even with the language barrier um although i i wonder how he was able to because the one guy swam off and then came back with like a thing of meat and like a chunk of bread. It's like, how was he swimming in that bread's not completely soggy? <laughs> Very true. Oh, the things I catch. Um, <laughs> but yeah, when they uh, they make the uh, the arrangement that they're going to come back later, and um, of course the only way they they can get across because if they try to cross the bridge, then whoever's you know patrolling at night will see them and they'll get you know, in some big trouble. Um, so they have to swim back across naked again. So when they show up, they're all naked and the ladies just throw them, you know, whatever clothes they have. One of the guys end up wearing a dress. <laughs> it's quite funny. He's wearing like a petticoat, like a toga. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite funny, but uh, it was just, it, again, it's one of those things where it's like, I can, I can, I can understand the, the situation that they're in, that they're, they're out there, you know, facing death on a on a day to day basis, and they just want something that's not that's not, you know, hurling grenades and you know shooting their guns and uh, all this madness. This is war, you know, to even have the the company of a woman for. Even just a little while, even if there's the language barrier, it's a calm within a very, very, very wild storm. Um, then it it seems to be that the ladies at least have some idea of the the situation, and they apparently don't seem to to care that this is going to be a you know probably a one night one night stand kind of thing. Um, which I think just goes to show that at least the, at least some people who aren't necessarily in the military are aware that life is not what it was pre-war. That that the situation is different, and um, that um, you know, life is probably life is short, and you know, you take whatever pleasures you can get, and if that means you know, a little hugging and kissing and a uh, and some bread, then so be it i guess <laughs> that's very well put and and what about you zan what did you make of this should we say like like uh, rachel was saying this kind of calm within this very wild storm that is the first world war rachel i thought i thought the exact same thing like wait are, did you just pull that bread out of your pocket like wait, it's in the water like what wait who do you think you're gonna get with watery bread whatever um <laughs> i thought this one was was an interesting scene because it could have gone so many different ways because these were French girls. So they could have easily slit these Germans' throats. Mm. So it, the fact that it didn't go that way, I thought was 
a little bit rosier than it could have been. <laughs> and I, th- I thought that it was a great illustration of how terrible this war is for everyone, including civilians. Because if you are going to have sex with the enemy for their army rations, imagine how bad the food, the food situation is. I wouldn't have sex with my enemy for Hamon Ibirico, okay? Let alone any other reason. So it's a really good way of showing things are terrible. These girls are happily going to reward these enemy soldiers with some physical pleasures because they brought them sausages. I mean, I guess I guess that's a double entendre too, but yeah. I literally <laughs> brought them sausages. And that's the first thing that they did when they came in. They came in with the food. They brought the food to the table. They started slicing the bread, slicing the sausage and eating it. And they sort of, you know, the one that that Paul gets with is sort of looking at him like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll get to you. You know, just <laughs> you're next on my list, but first I'm making a sandwich. And so I, I thought it was... I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't have said I wouldn't say I thought this was a tender scene. I just thought it was a very good way of showing that these are people during a war. They have nothing against each other because these are French women, so they have no. They don't feel like they need to kill them or anything. They don't feel like they're after them. And what the things people will do in times of desperation. Um, but I did want to mention one of the scenes I did think was very tender was when Paul and his friend, and I forget which friend it was, were, were talking about the poster and how they would feel if they met the, who, you know, tell, tell me more about the girl in the poster. Yeah. And I thought that was a very sweet and tender scene, even though the one said, no, make her 17. I mean, that creeped me out a little bit, but <laughs> I, still thought, I still thought that was a sweet, a sweet moment. Well, I suppose you have to maybe think that they're, they're this, I mean, obviously they're way older, but they're probably playing 17, 18 year old guys themselves, I guess. You know, obviously to our eyes, it might seem very creepy because like there's no way these folks are, are below seven, are below uh, 18 years right. old. You know, Luez, you know, Luez looks way older than that, but apparently they're all 16, 17 years old. But, and um, 17 was probably the, probably the girls they left. You know, the girls they left behind and they put their yeah. lives on pause to go to war. Those were 17 year old girls. So they're just going back. They're probably just going back to what they knew. You know, yep. they're trying to, to maybe almost recreate uh, what they what they did leave behind indeed. And and and, you know, from, of course, you know, this, you know, should we say French connection, as it were, we go back, of course, once again to another scene, which is uh, it's another very potent one. It, you know, either we're on the front, you know, in the trenches or in the hospitals. And once again, we return to another very strong scene in the hospitals where, of course, uh, Paul himself winds up. Where, of course, you know, he is super terrified because he gets told about this room that if you go into that room, it means you're dead and you're not coming out. And and we have the whole fact that he gets taken in and then he's like, I'm alive, I'm alive. You know, I survived the room. And all this. I was kind of like almost it made me think of Escape the Room for some very strange reason. But that was just <laughs> me because <laughs> I because obviously before. You know, obviously COVID-19 happened. I actually had played Escape the Room with my friends, so that was still in my mind. But aside from that, that was another very, I think, a scene we should definitely look at for sure. When it came to this other hospital scene where Paul is actually in the hospital, you know, lying himself in the hospital bed, what did you guys make of that one? Let's start with you, Zan. What did you think of that hospital scene? I thought it was a really good depiction of how terrifying it must be 
in this type of warfare, which remember the world had never seen before. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a little, you know, for it, the United States had a little bit of it um, in the Civil War where when the South was losing, they were trying everything that they could to stay afloat. And the North kind of figured out that they were running low on supplies when somebody in the North got hit with a nail. They were putting nails in their guns instead of bullets because they didn't have any more bullets. But this idea of shrapnel, this this foreign metal objects being hurled into your body and either cutting off your appendages or infecting you so badly that you just can't keep your legs or your arms or what have you. That was kind of new to the world. Mm. And so the horror of that, that the hospital doesn't mean you're safe. You know, you're, you're still fighting infection. You're still fighting your body's immense trauma of having a leg cut off. And the idea that, Hey, Hey, did you hear that what's his name went into the other room and he never came back? And just that sort of fear, like, when is my day to go in the other room? And you're right, Paul comes back like, suck it, bandaging unit. I'm still here. <laughs> He's so excited. And I think that he gives, you know, he, he, he gets so much hope from that, that concept. Like, if I can survive this hospital, you know, things, can, things might look up. I mean, they don't, but still, I mean, things could maybe look up in here. And it also is showing you. The, those hospital scenes, you're seeing the the men who are suffering from PTSD, which back then we called shell shock, and his friend Knopf, which has depre- who has depression, and just how it it might seem like a relief to be off of the field, but no, it's still it's still terrifying. I mean, a war hospital is still absolutely terrifying. I thought this scene did a great job of of conveying that. Well, very well said. And what about you, Rachel? What did you make about uh, about Paul coming out and this single guy kind of suck it bandage room? Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it was uh, a nice moment of levity, I guess. Um, but then you know he's all excited. He's like, "Yay!" You know, I came back, and then he realizes that once again he's got a friend who is injured and is not in the the best headspace and i'm sure his mind probably went back to to franz um and you know it's he's you know trying to to be optimistic because for once he actually has a reason to be optimistic he's like i went to the hospital and i'm alive still um but to be again surrounded by guys that he knows that uh, have these horrific injuries you know um what's his face aside um the guy that used to be their mailman that now has a a note that essentially gives him carte blanche to do whatever the heck he wants because he's supposedly got a head injury um that it's just you know it's like it's another it's another roller coaster moment, you know. It's like, yay, this is something good and happy to be about and now I'm sad again. Yeah. <laughs> because like I'm gonna be fine, but everyone else is having a really awful time and this sucks. So it, it, it does suck for sure, indeed. I will agree with you. And you know, and, and from the hospital, you know, actually do get to see then Paul come home. And Zan actually touched up on this a little bit. But we get to see, we get to have, you know, as well, almost a microcosm of 
what it was what you know it was like for the soldiers to come home and talk to their family in this case Paul's mom Beryl Mercer who plays Frau Balmer and of course Marion Clayton who plays his sister Erna now when it came to the other members of the Balmer family uh, Rachel what did you make of uh, you know granted they were in this movie very not that long but what did you make of Frau Balmer and Erna Balmer um it, it was it was nice to have some more ladies um, <laughs> for a hot moment. Um, it, it seems like he's got a very uh, close relationship with his mother and, and sister. And um, it, it's obvious that he's trying to hide, you know, his, his PTSD and, uh, you know, his anxieties and all those things from his mother. Um, probably even more so now that he's you know he comes out finds out that his mom is ill um but you know and his sister's like you know she's like oh if i had known you were coming then i would have made extra potato cakes you know <laughs> <laughs> um you know his sister's just like you know i'm cooking in the kitchen and oh here's your clothes you know you're, we left your room exactly how you left it and you know his He's he's leaving his mom oblivious for a reason, but it almost seems like his sister is just oblivious, you know, whether that's out of ignorance or she's just, you know, she's, you know, she's the, you know, the child is still at home. So, you know, she's having to take care of mom who's ill and, you know, once we're introduced to dad and realize the family dynamic there, it's like, you know, the sister's kind of become the, the head of the house, it seems, you know, mm -hmm. doing the cooking and probably the cleaning and, and all of that. Um, so, you know, any ignorance she may have just is probably not any sort of, you know, out of uh, maliciousness on her part, it's probably just she doesn't have time to be concerned about anything else because she's got to be the, the housekeeper. Well, definitely, definitely a great so say, snapshot of what it was like maybe away from the front. And, and mm -hmm. you know, Zan, what did you make of, uh, as, as Rachel was saying, what, the two of the more uh, present ladies in this film, Frau Baumer and Erna Baumer? I thought their their scene. Well, first of all, I love Beryl Mercer. Um, I always think she's just such a sweet mom. Whenever she does her mom <laughs> character, she's uh, uh, James Cagney's mother in The Public Enemy, which is one of my all time favorites. So when I saw her in this, I'm like, "Yay, Beryl Mercer! This is going to be great." Um, this this was an interesting commentary. I thought this scene on what the home front doesn't know about what war is like and how. I think at the time we were not only, you know, Germany especially was not only shielding the horrors from its citizens, but also I think men were coming home and not wanting to upset their mothers or upset their wives or upset their sisters with what horribleness was going on. So you know, like you were saying, Rachel, the sister has to be the one who's taking care of the house and taking care of the mother while the mother is ill. And the mother's just excited to have her baby back. So neither one of them really fully real. They just know that they have a hero that's coming home is how they're feeling about it. And none of them, neither of them really actually know how horrific his life has been for the past. What, what was it like three years by the time he had gone home for leave? Yeah, something and like that. Something like that. He'd been gone a really long time. And 
this is, of course, you know, World War One is, of course, before television, before we saw every, you know, we didn't have a televised war until Vietnam. So this idea of whatever the newspapers told you is what you learned about it. And then your brothers, your sons came home and just said, oh, it's great to have your cooking again, Ma. And just just because they're home to forget about this, the last thing they want to do is talk about it. The last thing they want to do is relive it, and the last thing they want to do is worry their parents, like you saw with Paul. I don't want to worry my mother. She's sick. I can't. I can't put this burden on her right now. And how much he wants to just stay there with her and be a little boy again, just a you know the the red the blue pill from the matrix you know it just yeah. i don't want to remember this i don't want to even know that this is going on so i think you see i think that's that's probably something that happened to a lot of people where you had these men they would come home to women who were sort of blissfully oblivious of the horrors of war and they were not told about it because why would you want to relive that and why would that be you know however long you have with your family why do you want it to be that why do you want it to be those stories and I thought this scene was a good illustration of how that's probably how a lot of families operated. Well, yes, very true. And, you know, we also get, I guess, somewhat of a callback to what Paul's life was before the war. And granted, you know, I'm not a fat, big fan of folks who, you know, kind of track butterflies and what have you. But we did have, you know, the whole thing of him being a big fan of, you know, putting butterflies on the wall and everything. Of course, the butterfly thing will return. And I think that was, this was probably almost a Chekhov's gun, if you will, when we mm-hmm. came the scene of him walking in and seeing, you know, his framed picture of the butterflies. Um, but I think it was also, you know, almost a callback to, you know, when it was a simpler time for him and that's what he would do. And he was just, you know, so carefree as it were. And I was actually almost wondering whether his mom was actually ill or whether she'd actually fallen in depression because of the fact that her son was at the front. Cause she said, I have to sleep. I have to sleep and all this kind of thing. So it made me almost feel like, I wonder whether she's actually sleeping as a coping mechanism. That was almost my thought. I don't That's know. That's a good I mean, question. Because she she is granted an, 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 an older woman. But, you know, because as soon as he comes back, she like almost jumps out of bed. So I was wondering whether she goes to bed and sleeps because it helps her deal with the pain to numb the fact of not to have to think about um, her son being away from the front. So I thought it might have been that. But, you know, that, that was that was just my way of, of, of seeing it but you know it's uh, unfortunately we you know mr milestone isn't around to tell us so <laughs> i don't know but that was that was my interpretation but uh moving on from from this great scene as we did mention him a little bit let's talk about the man who is probably paul's best friend on the front and probably i think my favorite character in this film he met and, and, and the reason why paul goes back to the front to see him again the amazing louis warheim as kat kaczynski now, when it came to uh, to Kat Kaczynski, Zan, what did you make of, of this character and, of course, the way he was played by Mr. Warheim? This was also my favorite character in the movie. And um, I thought they did a good... I thought uh, Louis Warheim was a good casting choice for this because of his smashed nose. Yeah. Um, because he looks like... He looks like a tough guy. You know, he, he looks like he's going to be like the total hard ass that Himmelstoss is going to be, but he's not, he's very compassionate and he's very, you know, I'll do anything for my boys kind of a guy. And even at the beginning, when they first meet him, it's like, you watch me. And when I, when I drop, you drop, but try to drop faster than me. 
Um, just that that sort of thing of of like you know you, this is how you're going to survive this war. And even he's the one that goes out and steals a pig for everybody. You know he's he's stealing food. I mean he's he's risking getting caught for other people. He could be going out stealing in the middle of the night and nobody knows it. And he's just you know eating his own loaf of bread in the middle of the forest, going like you know screw those guys. But no, he's he's bringing it back to everybody. He's very realistic. He's very compassionate. Um, and he he understands, you know, he's been there through the war and he understands that, you know, these new guys coming in, they're going to see this stuff and we just have to be there for each other. And I thought he was a he was a really fantastic character. And, and what about you, Rachel? Were you a fan of Cat? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think besides besides our lead, I think he's probably one of the other more fleshed out characters. Um, you know, this is a guy that's been around for a while and knows the ropes. And so when he gets a, you know, this group of newbies in, it's like, oh, well, here we go again. Um, and, uh, but it's yeah, like, how many guys has he seen? You know? <laughs> yes. That's, yeah. the, that's the sad thing. Yeah. Um, but he just kind of, you know, brushes it off and like, okay, well, let's, uh, let me show you guys the ropes and, um, you know, I'll see what I can do to scrounge up something to eat. And, um, you know, it's all just business as usual, I think, for him at this point because of, you know, however long he's been there. It's been a while. Um, so it, he probably doesn't. I would assume that because he's probably seen so many guys come and go that he probably tries not to make it a habit to get too familiar with them. And the fact that he and he and um, uh, oh. Paul did develop this this kind of friendship, um, uh, I imagine, was kind of somewhat unusual for for Cat. Um, so the fact that you know that he. Uh, doesn't make it to the end although paul doesn't either uh but still you know he's all like you know the war's not over until i'm dead <laughs> right and he's and even to the end he's out there looking for food for everybody yeah you know he's he's just he's kind of a selfless character yeah which makes right. him very uh in endearing compared very to some so. of the others yeah Oh yeah, he was he was actually a fantastic character, and I think as probably most folks who have seen this movie, you know, and as I mentioned, he is my favorite character because you know at first, like you were both saying, you do get the impression he is at first a crusty, hardened guy, yet he's so lovable, and he pretty much becomes a dad to all these all these soldiers right. because you know because poor the rest of the boys, you know, I like young teenagers, and obviously Cat is way past that, but. And but the fact that you know you can tell his bark is way worse than his bite. He's definitely an old softy at the end of the day. And I love the fact that he ends up having a soft spot for Paul. And I I actually was so hoping he would make it out of the movie alive. And I kept saying to him, almost I was yelling at the screen saying, please don't let Cat be dead. Please don't let him be dead. Even at the end, the at the right at the end, you know where he's out scrounging for food and Paul's out there. I'm like, no, he's gonna die. Why does he have to die? But um. Yeah. And he, they, they both broke the fatal flaw of a war story. Don't make plans for after the war. That's right. The that's more right. plans you make for after the war, the less chance you have of actually seeing plans after the war. <laughs> I, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, <clears throat> I suppose that was probably giving the game away of he's not going to survive this picture. But, um, 
But I was, but I was just so happy to see him every time he was on screen. Heck, even when Paul goes back to the front and they meet again, I was happy. I was actually smiling when I saw them. But I was like, yay, you know, these old buddies, they're kind of meeting up again. And because that's the whole reason why Paul goes back. And it's crazy if you think about it. He actually wants to go back to war to meet somebody because he has such a strong bond with him. And I think it was almost sad if you think that you have to go to such a back to a violent scene to meet somebody who you've you know, struck up such a strong friendship with, which was very, it's, 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 it's a curious one, but, and if also folks, partially, it was yeah. partially that and partially just how much he hated those guys in the bar and everybody else that's like, Oh yeah, we're going to take Paris. This is going to be great. And he's like, you know, shut the hell up. I can't be around you people. You don't get it. You don't understand how terrible this is. At least if I go back, I have friends who get this, you know, yeah, and I, I thought. Put, yeah. I thought. I just wanted to. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I just wanted to comment from it on on that scene because I thought that was so interesting about how horrible these civilian armchair generals, full of crap, mm-hmm. they are, that he's like, you know, screw you guys. I've got four more days of leave. I'm going back to the war and back to my friends who understand that war is not pretty. It is not heroic, and you guys can suck it. <laughs> well, and he got. Yeah, yeah, you know, chastised when he went back to the schoolroom too. Yeah, you know, where he's trying to explain to these guys, you know, all this stuff that the professor's saying sounds great, but it's a load of crap. It's not anything <laughs> like that. It's way worse, and they're just calling him a coward. And this he's like, is okay, what home is going to be like. I don't want to go home again. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm not a coward. I'm going to go back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, if this I is if you guys if you guys are what I'm going to have to put up with if I stay here. No, I'm not. I'm not doing that. I'm not staying here. I'm not putting up with you people any second longer. I thought that was. I thought that was fascinating. Oh yeah, uh, I, I could have almost seen Eric Cartman sh- show up saying, "Screw you guys!" Screw you guys! Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what... you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I could just see Eric Cartman doing that. But anyways, aside from that, that South Park kind of uh, departure there. I mean, the, the, you were mentioning, of course, the fact of him having a broken nose, Zan. The fact is, of, you know, for our listeners, Mr. Walheim was actually quite the scrapper in real life, as he'd actually had his nose broken, uh, which became, of course, a trademark of his. He actually had it broken where, during an injury during a football game, because he was actually, you know, a, a semi-professional football player, and um, he loved to fight. And hence why his nose suffered from the multiple fights that he got into while playing football and not just in the U.S. Because outside the U.S., before actually joining the American army himself, he was in Mexico selling raincoats and boots to revolutionaries. Wow. And and he was known apparently for his carousing and fighting over there in Mexican bars. (laughs) Known for your carousing and fighting. And then you come home and you're friends with the Barrymores. What a surprise. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> anything can happen, I guess. But yeah. But, but yeah, you know, so so both on camera and off, you know, I think, um, you know, Mr. Warham very much lived the character of Cat, and you know, you can tell that he he definitely he's he's lived it and he got the T-shirt. And I think we all definitely need a cat in our lives, in all senses, be it a furry cat or be it a human cat. But um. He's just larger than life, and he's probably one of my biggest takeaways from this film. I I just uh. 
was all smiles and no surprise the man actually made the cover of the po- the front of the poster of this film i mean that that definitely is not a, not a surprise and a wonderful character indeed so and but speaking of of lovable characters let's get to one another lovable member of the troupe let's look at the guy who when cat is is around is usually not far behind slim somerville as tiarden now when it came to this character what did you the two of you make of him let's start with you rachel what did you think of of slim somerville as tiarden um he he's an interesting character he's a character uh compared to i think some of the others you know he's just you know he seems like he's uh older um you know he's kind of i don't know if he's necessarily like you know cat's like right hand man or whatever but he's just he's someone who seems a bit more seasoned as well um although compared to cat is a lot more cynical I think, although I don't know if he's using that cynicism and that sarcastic humor to, because I think he's the one that's at one point makes a comment about the the sawdust, how there's more. Uh, now um, it's, eat, there used to be food eating. in the sawdust. Now it's just yeah. sawdust. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so. Um, but he's a uh, he's an interesting interesting character, um, and. Uh, but when they, um, you know, when they're having the, um, is it is it him that's talking about the one they're sitting around discussing why war it's happens him. in the first place? Yeah. Is it his, is he's one of the Kaiser and die. Yeah. 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 So that that gives you an interesting insight into his perspective on the on the war and everything, uh, especially compared to cats, where cats all like to take all the leaders, strip them down to the underwear, give them clubs, and have them fight it out. Whoever wins wins. Sell tickets. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, definitely, definitely quite the character. And what about you, Zan? What did you make of Tiarden? I I did like this character for that one scene. I mean, he was kind of a kind of a negative negative guy and you're just sort of a goofy guy when they see when they meet the french girls he's like i want the blonde one like oh yeah just like that (laughs) (laughs) whatever um but i i loved that that scene where they're all trying to figure out why the hell they're at war in the first place is one is is my favorite scene in this um one of my you know i have a couple of favorites a couple of scenes i really love in this in this movie but that's my favorite one where they're discussing it and you know, he's being so realistic about it. He's like, what are, what are you talking about? There's some mountain in Germany that gets offended by a, that gets mad at a field in France. <laughs> How are countries mad at each other? And, you know, they're all trying to figure out, like, I don't, I don't want to kill a British guy. I never even saw a British guy until I got here. And they're all talking about how, how did this possibly start? And the thing I love about that scene is that we still don't know. <laughs> we still can't. There's still no good reason for this war to have happened. You know, I, I remember trying to learn more about World War One when I was in my 30s. Like, look, I still don't get this. And just reading and watching documentaries and thinking, okay, the Kaiser was crazy. I mean, that's why we went to war is because the Kaiser said, if you don't do this, you're not my friend anymore. And countries are like, well, we got to be friends with the Kaiser, so we might as well do this. So... There's no good reason for this war, and I think the soldiers at the time, you know, they knew it. You know, the author of this book knew it, Wilfred Owen knew it, and this scene really illustrates that, which was interesting to me, because that's not what I was used to when I'd seen war movies. That war movies were such, and I think this is an interesting time period where we are 
post World War One, but pre World War Two. So we're in this calm before the storm era of our culture that we're thinking, oh, thank God, we never have to go through any of that. Who? Hitler? What? What's his name? We're going through that period of thinking everything's fine, and so we can go back and be reflective on this. And and I think this this Jaden character really starts that conversation with, you know, don't be, you know, don't, this is not a town to be hungry in. This is, you know, what's, you know, what's the deal with this war? This is ridiculous. And I thought he was great for advancing that point because, and I thought this was an interesting movie because again, we think of old timey war movies as being super propaganda, but not yet. Not yet. This was early enough that we were talking about, okay, it's been long enough that we can talk about how horrible the war was because we can hopefully learn from it. But, you know, it was just eight years <laughs> before another war was about to start. You know, little did we know. Yeah, indeed, because I was kind of, you know, almost looking at, should we say, the progress of the Nazi party at the time. And of course, you know, it was on the rise. You know, Hitler had not yet come to power, but it was moments away from Hitler becoming Chancellor of Germany. And so <clears throat> it was interesting to kind of look at it in that sense, for sure. Um, but yeah, when it came to Tiaden, you know, I, I, you know, like both of you were saying, he is kind of the Eeyore of the group, you know, very gloom <laughs> and doom. That's a perfect um, description. He is the Eeyore <laughs> of the group, yes. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I kept wondering, you know, what was it with his deal with Kim constantly going on with me and the Kaiser don't agree or me and the Kaiser this and that, because... I'm sure that Tiaden probably was not friends with the Kaiser, but um, it was curious that he would almost, I suppose they wanted somebody to almost represent, you know, because um, um, you know, I, I mean, none of us have read the book, but I have a feeling that probably this was just kind of also the representation of what, you know, those who supported the Kaiser felt about all this. And, and of course, you know, going then, in, if you go and then look at uh, pre-Second World War stories, Hitler then was was super against what the Kaiser wanted because the Kaiser actually wanted peace. So the simple was like, yeah, okay, I screwed up. Okay, let's be friends. Okay, we're done. We're done, kind of thing. But um, but yeah, it's uh, I, I very much like this character. But yeah, he is very much the the aura of the group. But but it's also there's humor in his gloominess, and I very yes. much like liked like this character. He almost he almost was like the dark Stanley Laurel. I found that yeah. <laughs> it's like if Stanley Laurel has a dark cousin. It's Tiaden. But um, but yeah, it's a, a definitely a fantastic, fantastic um, character indeed. So let's get to the less lovable side of the troupe. And and we actually mentioned him a little bit. John Ray as Hiddlestos. Let's start with you, Zan. What did you make of, of the character of Hiddlestos? That freaking coward. I hate him. <laughs> Just, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not a proponent of hazing, but I had no problem. With, with his hazing, I, I just hated him so much. Just at the, at the beginning, you're thinking, okay, well, at least this guy isn't pulling any punches. This is war. This is going to suck. But then as you learn more about him, you're like, no, he's just an ass. <laughs> and then when, you know, you sort of forget about him. And then when you see him again and they're like, no, 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 you're coming with us. And, the, and he's just... Before anything is even happening, he's like, oh, God, no, ah, he's just a cowering coward. And and I feel that that is a good depiction of what I believe all armchair generals really are. They're just cowards. They are completely detached from the situation, total sociopath, sociopathic cowards. And, you know, anybody that's trying to 
ride soldiers really hard and work, you know, the Kaiser too, you know, trying to work these soldiers until they're dead, you know, making them go forth on with nothing for years because by God, this is my war and I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen for myself. Um, just unconscionable coward. And he was a perfect one to hate for that very reason that, you know, you have these men that will tell you what you should be doing in war and what you have to do. And here's what you need to do for the fatherland. And they would be, you know, on, on one hand you have cat who would never do anything that he wouldn't ask his company to do. You know, he, he wouldn't ask them to do anything he wouldn't do himself. And then on the other hand, you have this character that can barely even walk through a trench without crying. So yeah, he was, he was a disgusting character and a perfect depiction of armchair cowardice. And, and what about you, Rachel? Did, did you feel as strongly as Zan did about Hiddleston? Yeah, he, uh, he talks a he talks a big game, but then when it's time to actually like you know back up that talk, he can't at all, um, which is seems to be the case in in uh, movies like this. I think sometimes where you get someone in a that's given a position of authority and they're like, you know, all talk and no action. Um, yeah, he was probably really jerky older brother too. Yeah, mom said I'm in charge, so you're my slave until they get home. Yeah, and he was probably one of those kind of jerks. Yeah, so it's like you know he did, and he didn't join that much earlier than the the um than the the guys, but you know why is he in this position of authority? Uh, I think because he's older. I guess I don't know, um, but yeah, he's just yeah. I I didn't shed any tears over over him. Nope. I was like, oh, that took long enough. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it looks like no tears for Hiddleston, indeed. I mean, I was actually at first trying to understand how everybody knew him. As I have to be honest, I couldn't place him at first, and I figured he must have been a known figure in their city because there was like, you know, they seemed like, oh, hey, man, how you doing, kind of thing, and because they're all good terms on good terms, and he turns out to be the most cowardly of the lot, as you were both saying. Rather like, you know, let these kids kind of like let these kids kill themselves, and then I'll go out when everything's done, kind of thing, and then until he's forced. To go over the top, as they would say. I did like, you know, that in the last few moments of joy these kids had before their encounter with, with the war, the prank they played on him, I was laughing with them. <laughs> yeah. I loved the justice of them, of, of them throwing him in the mud like he made them constantly be in the mud. I mean, granted, he was preparing them for what was actually going to happen, but like, yeah, here's the yeah. mud, jerk. See how you like it. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, granted this was pre-code, but I also would like to point out, we got naked male buttocks in these films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, you know, it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, the rear end of tons of men here. So I'm like, okay, I guess this is pre, you know, pre-code for sure. But, you know, I was, like I said, I was with all the soldiers when they, when they treated him the way they did and they threw him in the muds. Because just like Professor Kantarek, who's very much enamored with the idea of war, but, you know, it's like when you're actually there, you're like, oh, maybe I was just kind of, you know, I was joking. I don't really like war as much, you know, and 
But uh, but yeah, no no tears shed over over this guy indeed. So as we didn't mention it before, we actually get to the if we were the academy segment, ladies. You know, let's look at how this movie ending ended because you know we did talk about it a little bit when it came to to the ending of the film, Rachel. What did you make of you know the final scene and you know ostensibly, of course, Paul dying and the famous butterfly flying into his his open palm? Um, it's it's sad. It's it's definitely I think one of the the saddest scenes if for considering how sh- you know a abrupt it ends and it's like oh yeah that's the end of the movie but just you know we've been with this guy for you know two-ish hours in this film and you know he's he's just you know he's he went home realized that you know he, he, after going through what he's been through it's like a, you know you can't really go home again um so you know he he goes back reunites with cat cat ends up dying and you know he's like okay well this is this is my lot in life and you know he's sitting there in the the trench with his gun just you know waiting for something to to happen and you know to see this butterfly which is probably you know i think in some uh some instances, you know, uh, butterflies are signs of metamorphosis, but they're also, you know, beautiful and their lives aren't very long. So it's fleeting and, um, you know, they're very innocent and delicate. And that's kind of like, you know, how life is, you know, you grow and change, but at the end of the day, life is short, but it can be beautiful. And all these kind of metaphorical things all wrapped up into this little butterfly and you know he just has this moment of distraction uh by this you know beautiful delicate thing and then it ends up costing him the it makes him have to pay the ultimate price and you know whether he had resigned himself to the fact that he's like you know i'm back here i'm probably gonna die so be it or you know, if he just, you know, so he didn't care, you know, if he knew sticking his hand out there might be a risk if there were any snipers in the area or something or, you know, it's hard to tell what his mindset was at that, at that point. Um, but uh, it is, it's beautiful and sad all at the, all at the same time that, you know, our quote unquote hero does not get the stereotypical heroic ending that uh, we come to uh, expect, I think, from more modern uh, storytelling. Very well said. And what about you, Zan? What did you make about that, I guess we could say, iconic moment of, you know, the outstretched hand and the butterfly flying into uh, Paul's dead hand, as it were? I'm with Rachel on this one. I, I... There's a lot of question for me about what was going on through his mind when he did that, because he really does know better than to do that during a fight like this. And was he maybe thinking, I need this. I need a second of beauty in my life after these last few years of this. Or like we were saying before, you know, he's got a home he doesn't want to go back to. He's got a friend he doesn't have anymore. What's, you know, is this worth the risk? You know, what what is going on through his head? So 
I I found that interesting too that, that you could read it a, a bunch of different ways. Um, it could even be like you know oh a butter you know that butterfly could be his rosebud, yeah. and he could just have lost himself for a minute. Who knows? But you could read it in so many different ways, which I thought was great. The ending of this movie kind of took the air out of me. I was expecting it, but it when it happened, it really did sort of take the air out of me because, and I like thought, am I going to cry or am I just going to sit here shocked with my mouth open? And, and I just sort of sat there shocked with my mouth open because you have that moment where it, you know, you see him get shot, you see his hand go limp, and then it goes dark for about 10 seconds before you get you get the end. And you're just sort of left there in the dark going, oh my gosh, what, this is, this was a gut-wrenching ride that just has ended so, so bleakly. And it, it's an interesting thing, and I said a similar thing the first time I ever saw Das Boot. Hmm. And this is a similar ending to Das Boot, and it's odd for me as an American who was raised in America with American propaganda to find myself sympathizing with German soldiers in any capacity at any time. But this movie made you do it. And Das Boot did the same thing. So you go through this ride of these, you know, it, this one is a little bit, um, you feel a little bit better about feeling sympathetic, more sympathetic than you would during World War II. But still, it's still the Germans. They still did some horrible things. You know, Germany is why we have chlorine gas. Thank you very much for its harbor. But so it's not like it's a, you know, they're not unscathed in this war. But so to watch a movie where you find yourself really rooting for these guys who are German soldiers is a strange feeling to begin with. And then when you have an ending where they're almost there, like I said, sorry, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Das Boot either, where they're almost home free. And then just something comes in and gets them. You're like, oh, my my heart is broken. And it's it's a very strange, it's a very strange feeling. Oh, it is a very strange feeling. I mean, you know what, I actually, you know, granted it was just myself and my cat watching this film. But uh, when we got that scene, of course, of Paul dying and the butterfly falling in his palm, and then, of course, we get the superimposed scene of the soldiers and, you know, a scene that uh, the sad oh, yeah. have come to know of the white crosses and, of course, the soldiers marching in just silence. I'm actually getting goosebumps now just talking about it, is no music, just silence, and then everything all fades to black and goes to the end. I just... Didn't know what to do, because usually I would actually have, you know, folks call me crazy, but I actually have conversations with my cat about a film that I've just seen. And I just couldn't mm -hmm. talk to her. She was just kind of looking at me and I just I, I just shook my head. I said, I don't know what to tell you, because it was just that's how strong this film moved me from the, 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 the palm and the butterfly to the white crosses. And it's, there's actually, you know, we, you know, when folks who get to then hear this podcast we do actually um i will actually be posting the um uh, greenfields of france and there's a beautiful um part of the lyrics which is uh, the countless white crosses in mute witness stand and it is very much that image of just the white crosses and the soldiers is just so potent and i was like i i wanted to get up and just applaud but i just couldn't you know because it was just such i was like oh my but i just did not know what to do with myself for like the next 10 minutes after the film was over. It was just like so, so potent. 
But that said, uh, you know, before we get to ratings here, ladies, let's get to our segment of If We Were the Academy. So this film was actually running up against the crime film The Big House, Disraeli, The Dibble Sea, and Love Parade with Maurice Chevalier. So when it comes to, to the two of you, does All Quiet on the Western Front get the Oscar for you, or would you say it's at least Oscar worthy? Let's start with you, Rachel. Do you think this movie deserves the gold standard? Um, well, I don't have, uh, I, I don't know about any of the other, um, its fellow uh, nominees, um, so I don't necessarily have a frame of reference for those. Um, this is, uh, and I, I know I mentioned this in the, the previous episode, this is a strange time for the Academy Awards because they're still doing the awards by season as opposed to year. So um, this is actually the um, uh, second, uh, aca second Academy Awards ceremony held in the same calendar year um, in uh, this, in this case, November of 1930. The previous one had been in April of 1930. Um, but the window for eligibility was uh, shifted. So we've got uh, the films that would have been eligible would have been released between August 1st of 1929 and July 31st of 1930. Um, looking at movies that are from that same time period, uh, I mean, there's some good movies, some notable movies. Um, not all of them fall in that uh, that uh, eligibility category, and un unfortunately, um, but um, but yeah, just kind of looking at uh, other movies released in that same time, looking into the other nominees. Yeah, I think this is the best one of the bunch. Um, if for anything else, um, for the just sheer realness of it. And I know that Lewis Milestone really, really wanted to be as authentic as possible when making this movie. Uh, you know, he sent people out to look for veterans of the war to have them come in and authenticate things like costumes and props and stuff. And they ended up hiring a bunch of them actually as extras. Um, the, when they have to go out to uh, rewire the barbed wire, um, the one of the guys that's uh, in that scene helping him do that, was that's actually what he did during the, 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 the First World War. Um, so... Just the, the sheer scope and um, realness and rawness of, of this film, um, I think, not only makes it uh, worthy of the nomination, but I think in this case it actually is worthy of the, the, the statue itself. Well, very well said. And what about you, Zan? Do you think All Quiet on the Western Front deserves the gold standard? Hands down. Absolutely. I took a look at, uh, like Rachel was saying, I took a look at the other movies uh, from this year of eligibility. And there's some good movies, but just the authenticity, the honesty of this movie, I think 
just blow everything else out of the, out of the water. And um, when I was reading about this movie and the, how it was received at the time, um, Variety said something about how you know the League of Nations should buy this movie, translate it into every language in the world, and make people watch it until war is no longer in our vocabulary. Basically, you know something, they, some words to that effect. They said, and I just think the power of this movie alone makes it you know, makes it Oscar worthy. And, you know, the, the direction in this, I mean, it was, it was, you know, he did, you know, Lewis Millstone did win best director for this movie. And it was really something very fantastic. I mean, there were, like I've said before, there were some scenes that seemed like they were just sort of like you're filming a play where you just have two people talking and there's not a lot of camera work with that. But then you have those scenes where you have the, it's dark and the men are walking through the fog or like I said before about when, um, when Paul is in the trench and the French soldiers are jumping over him, you have some, these really interesting ways of directing. And then you have the scope of this where you are seeing all of these men, all of these soldiers in these fields where there's bombs going off and there's trenches dug. I mean, it was just, a, it was a quite a spectacle for that as well. So I, I absolutely think, this deserves the Oscar for, for this year. The only thing that I have a problem with, with the Oscars for this year is Lou Ayers and Louise Wilhelm, uh, Wilhelm do not get an Oscar nomination, but George Arliss and Maurice Chevalier got two. Like what, <laughs> what, I mean, I, I feel like that was a, a major oversight. That would be the only thing I would change about what happened to the Oscars this year is that there should have been some best actor even if they both were best supporting actor, you know, just some sort of compromise. But um, yeah, there's no, there's no reason for two people to get two nominations and nobody from this movie to get any. I, I very much agree. I mean, I was moved. I mean, it made me think, and in some parts it made me smile. And, you know, that final shot, like we were saying, of Paul's hand reaching out for the butterfly and the silent shot of the soldiers over the graveyard is as haunting as you're going to get. So definitely, I, I definitely think this is more than Oscar worthy and definitely deserve the Oscar for best film indeed. So let's get to ratings here. Where does this movie rate for you on a scale of one to ten? Let's start with you, Zan. This is a ten out of ten. Um, just with how, like I said, the honesty of how horrific war really is the honesty about how this war did not make any freaking sense. There was no clear enemy. There was no clear threat. And just the pointlessness, the horrificness, the, the, of, for everyone involved, like I said, you know, the, the soldiers, the civilians, everyone, this war was hell on everyone. And this movie pulls no punches about that. It's very, very honest. And it has, some amazing things in it. There's, there are a couple of scenes that just really shocked me. Um, and I just, that I thought were beautiful, but they're one of them being the, the, the life of the boots where they just go from one soldier to another that, you know, one soldier takes them from a dead soldier and then another soldier takes it from him when he dies. And just these boots go on. And just, that was so haunting for me. And then there's a scene where on the front line, you see somebody, they're running up to the barbed wire, they've got their hands on it, and then there's a flash, and then the hands are the only thing there. You know, that, to, I saw that, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> like, what, that is really gruesome, and I'm just, that's one of those moments where I just, my brain just goes, pre-code, and just the shocking gruesomeness of this, and its honesty, I think, and I was thinking about this 
I feel like it's a travesty that I was not shown this movie in, in school. That, you know, first of all, uh, you know, my my generation didn't learn didn't learn squat about World War One. We were we were vastly under under educated mm-hmm. ab- about World War One. It was just sort of you know we, it was sort of like yeah Civil War and then some stuff happened. Then there was this other war and then World War Two and then we spend like months on that and then we spend like months on Vietnam and then the school year is over. So I have always felt vastly under educated about World War One. And this would have been so easy. This is two and a half hours that you can, you know, spend a week showing this to kids in like 45-minute increments. And the fact that I was not shown this movie in school, I think, is an absolute travesty. I think it should be... I mean, if my if my seventh grade class can spend a month watching Roots in school, at, in chunks at a time, my junior high school, my junior year of high school, I could have watched this movie. I think it should be... Like we, ha- like we say, there's required reading. I think there should be required viewing, and I think this should absolutely be one of them. Because, again, like Variety said, until we need to watch this movie over and over and over again until we realize this is not going to solve anything and that war is too horrific to put anybody through it. So this gets a 10 out of 10 for me. Wow, well, very, very strong words there indeed. And what about you, Rachel? What do you give this film? Um, I... Don't feel quite as strong as, as, as Zan in, in in that regards. It, it's a great movie. Um, you know, it really, really makes you think. And I would probably give this a good eight, mm-hmm. probably. Um, but I definitely uh, agree with her sentiments of the uh, the education, at least in the U.S. We got bombed, and that's important to us here in the United States. And the I had a, a class in high school where we spent I don't know how long watching Ken Burns Civil War documentary series. So that shows where the priorities are. So um, yeah. Uh, not quite as as strong as far as score, but I definitely agree that it's significant and it's important uh, as an educational tool. Well, very well said. I'm, you know, I'm going to be like like Zan in this case. I'm definitely going to give this film a ten out of ten, as it just floored me, which is something a film has not done to me in quite some time. And you know, seeing it's a film from 1930. Even more so, kudos to this film, and yep, so definitely a 10 out of 10 when it comes to me. So we gushed about this film and dissected it, and if listeners out there would like to join us on one of our discussions, feel free to shoot us an email at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. We also love hearing from you guys, and you can also send us your thoughts at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, where you can find us as at Oscars Gold, and we're also on Facebook, where you can find us as Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. We very much appreciate your likes, follows, and overall support. Now, when it comes to you ladies, where can our fine listeners find you two on the interwebs and give us a little bit more about uh, what you do uh, when, when you're not on Gold Standard? Let's start with you, Rachel. Uh, well, I am uh, one of the co-hosts and the producers of the Five Ish Fangirls podcast. We're a weekly pop culture and entertainment podcast, and uh, we talk about everything from books, movies, games, all anything and everything nerdy. Uh, we we probably have covered it or plan on covering it at some point in the future. Um, so you can find us. Uh, the website is thefiveishfangirls.com, and from there you can find links to all our other social medias and then my personal social medias as well. Awesome. And when it comes to you, Zan, you know where can folks find you on the interwebs? 
I can be heard in podcast land with Charles Skaggs doing Ghostwood, the Twin Peaks podcast, uh, where we talk about all things Twin Peaks, David Lynch, uh, David Lynch adjacent type things. Um, and personally, Zan Sprouse on Facebook, Udenax19 on Twitter and Insta. Perfect. And when it comes to me, folks, if superhero movies are your speed, I do also host the Happiness and Darkness podcast, uh, where, of course, we discuss superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image and more. If you'd like to join me on there and discuss a superhero movie of your choice, feel free to send us an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We're also on social media, on Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness and Darkness, on Twitter at High Darkness Pod, or on Instagram under Hin Darkness. And for you country music lovers out there, I also host the Whiskey and Cigarettes show where we play traditional country, today's country, and everything else in between. For more about that and how to tune in, you can visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. And speaking of things to come when it comes to this podcast, next time we'll be taking on the first Western film to win an Oscar for Best Picture. That will be Wesley Ruggles' 1931 film, Cimarron. Now, Rachel and Zan, as always, I had an awesome time on this discussion with you both, and I definitely look forward to our next one. And when it comes, you know, to a little preview of this, of the next episode, are either of you fans of Western movies? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> How did I know that's what you were going to say, Rachel? How did I know? Yeah. Yeah, Westerns I, uh, are for boys. I'm sorry, yeah. but they're for boys. Their lady <laughs> characters are always poorly written, and yeah. uh, I don't care. So, yeah, I uh, I grew up with the uh, being uh, watched over by because both my parents worked, so my grandfather uh, watched me as a kid, and he was a huge fan of of westerns. Although he tried to limit how often they were on the TV when I was over. And then my father in law loves turning on the uh, the local access channel where they've just bought up you know all the old western tv shows for cheap and can oh, put boy. them on repeat all day every day so that's funny my father-in-law is a really big louis l'amour fan so it's that at least he's just reading his and i don't have to watch it yeah <laughs> well i'm i'm i mean i'm a bit of a bit of both i suppose you know it's gonna I think, i'm sure it's definitely gonna be a very interesting discussion indeed and before we actually do say our goodbyes folks i actually wanted to um take the take the time of course to dedicate today's podcast to the memories of three fantastic gentlemen who sadly left us recently though those those answer the name names of carl reiner of course, um, in your mortal corner, my fellow countrymen, and of course, Charlie Daniels. That said, folks, we will see you next time with Cimarron. Until then, enjoy those movies and keep that popcorn hot. See you next time. Ciao, my people. Well, how do you do, young Willie? My bride, do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside and rest for a while need the warm summer sun? I've been walking all day and I'm nearly done. I see by your gravestone you are only nineteen when you join. The Great Fallen in 1916 I hope you died well And I hope you died clean 
Our young Willie McBride Who was it slow and obscene Did he beat the drums slowly Did he play the fife slowly Did they sound the death march As they lowered you down And did the band play the last post and chorus Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest 